You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. There is this kind of ex- expectation that people have about church, about um, everything from the music to the seats to the experience to to how people are dressed on the stage to to what the pastor is supposed to preach like and be like and everything from from the coffee to to the parking, to the auditorium, we all have these expectations. And one of these false expectations, one of the many false expectations that people have of church is that somehow, for some reason, we're all supposed to agree about everything. Today, I want to talk about the tough stuff. In fact, there's kind of a problem with Scripture. And the problem with Scripture is this, is that not every passage in the Bible is crystal clear. Either you think it's obscure and open to interpretation, or... It's black and white clear. And as a result, good-hearted people come up with different views. So some people think, well, it's, it's so obscure that I can believe anything about it, or it's so clear that if it is not what I believe about it, then you and I cannot be friends anymore. And so the truth is, some parts of the Bible, we just don't have a clue as to what it means. That's the reality and the problem with the Bible. Another problem with us is that we often argue over the unclear and ignore the crystal clear. A lot of times in churches, most people think that we have to agree on everything and that everyone should agree with me or your, yourself. So there's this idea, like, for example, um, many of us, uh, it's, it's come to my opinion, uh, come to my attention or ask, people have asked me that it would be great to do a long Sunday morning study on the book of Revelation. Who would love a Sunday morning Revelation Bible study? Raise your hand if you honestly think that would be a pretty good idea. Some of you guys are lying because I know you've asked me and your hand isn't raised. So there's this concept that, man, it'd be great if we had a Revelation Bible study. Why? Because we don't understand it. But the problem is most teachers do not understand it either. And they're not sure about what it means either. So what happens is you get this Bible study or this sermon series that is almost purely speculation, right? And theories and concepts that are very obscure and open to interpretation, which kind of falls back to week's one problem with bogus Bible teachers. Well, this leads to, well, this next problem is that we don't know how to agree to disagree. That's another problem with us. Many Christians have a problem with this, especially when we feel very passionate about a particular passage or an interpretation. And I'm pretty sure that we all agree about everything, right? If you think that you agree with me on pretty much everything, go ahead and raise your hand. (laughs) I would think somebody would raise their hand. You know, on almost everything, you know, you probably, well, then sit with me for a while, all right? And your mind will be changed, possibly. Um, we don't agree on everything. And turn to your neighbor and say, I don't agree with you about everything. All right? See, maturity is the ability to disagree and still be friends. That's a, one of the uh, concepts. of. But today, we're going to take a look at some guidelines for dealing with controversial scriptures and then take a look at a particular a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is where we're at. This is a series on... 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at a section uh, that is probably one of the most controversial sections in all of the Bible. Uh, Living Way is a church that strives to keep unity. 
And in this room, we have different views on certain points of Scripture. And that is what ecclesia is all about. Ecclesia, which is what this series is, is the Greek word for church. So whenever you see the word church in the New Testament, it's the word ecclesia. And the word ecclesia means an impactful gathering of influential individuals or a, a purposeful gathering of individuals to make a difference. The idea is that we gather together to make a difference. That is what ecclesia is. So 1 Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul to this pastor called, uh, whose name is Timothy in a city called Ephesus. And he's basically saying, hey, Timothy, uh, there's a lot going on in the church that needs some help, so let's lay a new foundation on this church, and here is the blueprints for ecclesia. And that's what we've been looking at. And so today, we're going to talk about this whole idea is what happens when the church doesn't see eye to eye on everything. When it comes to theology and doctrine, are there some things that we can disagree on? Are there some things we can't disagree on? Uh, Well, this is what it is. Uh, Today, a potpourri of ideas. Most of them are used to attack. Some are very confusing. And let's jump right in. First of all, the easy stuff, how to deal with controversial issues uh, or passages. The easy stuff is we're going to pick up where we left off in 1 Timothy Uh, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul reminds Tim of some guys who did not stand strong. Now, we've all seen it before. People come to church, good intentions, they start attending, they maybe start a small group, uh, they start reading their Bible for a while, and they're there for about six months or eight months or a year, and then they just kind of drift away. They just kind of disappear, and we don't see them very much. And, and this passage is about those type of guys that, that basically started off strong. And, and these guys that he actually calls out by name, they even started out strong and went so far as they were in leadership, and then they kind of just drifted away. So um, this is what he says in First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction to keep him with the prophecies once made to you. That means you were prayed in as a pastor, as a leader. And there was word, uh, words of God spoken over you. Remember those. He says, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. That means so that you don't give up, so that you carry on, that you win this race, that you fight the good fight and finish the race. Paul used that analogy a lot. He used boxing and running a lot. He says, you know what? It's going to be a beating, but fight the good fight. It's going to be tough to run, but run that race, finish the race. He goes, Timothy, don't forget what was spoken over you and what God's spoken into your life, fight the good fight. And then he says this, holding on, not to the words that were spoken to you, but hold on to two things. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected. That word rejected literally is a a nautical term that means throw overboard. That Some have thrown overboard, and these have so, and this is this analogy, shipwrecked their faith. He says there are those that have thrown overboard their faith and a good or clear conscience, and as a result have shipwrecked their faith. Could I have one of our leaders double-check on that to make sure? We had an early movie that had been changed. Hopefully it wasn't changed to like 11. <laughs> so if we could have one of y'all check that out. He goes, powerful imagery here. Basically, these are people whose faith have been left in ruin. And among them, 
He names by name. Hymenaeus and Alexander. I tell you, man, Paul's not afraid to name names. He names names a lot through the scriptures. He says, man, he doesn't say just look out for, you know who I'm talking about. He says, look out for and remember among them Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, that is a crazy statement. That is a controversial statement in the Bible. What do you mean? Are we to hand people over to Satan? Satan. Sick him, Satan. You know, it's like, you know, you've done me wrong. They left the faith. They've fallen back. You know, are we to just kick him out of church and have Satan have their way with them? As, you know, some people have interpreted that as a, way, as a verse for excommunication. That means that you kick him out of the church and you just let Satan have at him and you actually kind of unleash the hounds of hell on them. That's not what's happening. If these guys were on the inside track of God and got off track, they rejected true doctrine, and they began to follow a false teaching of Jesus. And these guys are mentioned again in the second letter to Timothy. You'll hear them again. And in that letter, he says it was their false teaching that began to spread in the church like decaying flesh. He says it's, it's like someone who, who like spreads a disease and, and all of a sudden, they start, their flesh just starts growing and decaying and rotting off the bone. He says, that's how dangerous these guys were. Paulo follows, uh, Paul follows what Jesus said in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if there's a brother or a sister uh, that offends you or is, is kind of falling away into sin, Jesus says this in Matthew 18. He says, go you and you alone privately and address the issue with them and confront them. It says if they receive you, you've gained a brother, you've gained uh, a sister, you've gained this person's uh, walk with God and you are in unity together. Jesus then says if they don't listen to you, go a second time, this time with a friend, someone who knows them and, and who's a friend of yours, and the two of you address this issue with this person privately. And then it says if that if he receives you, then you've gained a brother. Man, welcome into the kingdom. You guys are in unity and you guys are growing together. Iron sharpens iron, right? So then he says, if he still or she still doesn't respond to this uh, loving discipline, he says, take it to the church, the ecclesia, which means take it to the leadership of the church and let the leadership of the church begin to deal with it. And I would say even more privately as well. So you might take it to a life team leader. You might take it to one of your pastors. And then uh, I might meet with this person privately and encourage them or encourage you to say, hey, you know what, this is an area in your life that, that the scriptures say something about, and I want to encourage you in that area. And then Jesus says that if they receive that word, then, then welcome them and receive them as you're growing together as brothers. But then Jesus says something else. He says, but if they still don't listen, Jesus said this. It's all in Matthew 18. He says, treat them like an unbeliever. All right, that means... Assume that they need Jesus, right? And how do we treat unbelievers? With love and with compassion, but with this knowledge that they need Jesus, right? And it's, and it's maybe they need salvation. Maybe they are so defiant in their walk with God that they, are, they have strayed so far that, that at this point, don't treat them like a brother or sister in Christ. Treat them like someone who needs Jesus. Now, what Paul did is he followed the instructions of Jesus in Matthew 18, and he attempted to correct these guys. He talks about it again in 2 Timothy. But they went their own way, and basically Paul is saying here that if they want to run, let them run. 
If they want to leave, let them leave because they're leaving the protective family of the ecclesia. And so he says, if they leave the covering and the protection of the body of Christ, if God is for you, who can be against you? But if you leave that protected body of Christ and you remove yourself from the arena of God's blessing and 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 uh, provision and his will, then you're literally putting yourself in a place where the enemy can attack you. And Paul says, let that happen. If they're going to run, let them run. Let's reach out to them still. As we find in 2 Timothy, he says, I still want to see these guys welcome back. He says, for this reason, so that they might learn. Because he says this word, so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. The idea is not to just abandon people, but sometimes there are people that are so defiant and so determined to do their own thing, sometimes you just got to let them do their own thing and, and, and love them and, and treat them like they need Jesus, but let them do their own thing, and perhaps they'll learn. Okay? So that's the idea here. What was it that shipwrecked their faith? Well, he says this, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, you may fight the good fight, right, holding on to these two things. Faith, that means, God, I trust you and you're in control, and a good conscience, which means I'm living in such a way in obedience to God that I have good conduct and I have a clear conscience in the actions that I'm living. Some have rejected these two and have shipwrecked their faith. So how does a good start go awry? How does a good start go off track? How do two people who, who got a good start, good intentions, how did they get so far off track? Three things. The first thing it says is we stop trusting God. When we stop trusting God and we start asking, what if God does not know the best in my life? What if he's not good? What if he's not there? What if God doesn't really care about me? What if he's not all that powerful? What if his will is not what's best for my life? When we start to question the goodness of God and we start to remove our trust and reliance upon him and start putting our trust and reliance on ourselves, then we are headed for shipwreck ruin. When we stop trusting God. Another thing he says this, he says, when we stop obeying God, that's the good conscience. When we stop obeying God's word, what if, when we start questioning it and say, what if it's out of date? What if the Bible doesn't apply anymore? What if it's wrong? What if I don't like what it says? And, and I think I know what's better for my life. Or I, I read that, but I don't want to do that. You know, I know what's best for me. What if we choose to not walk in obedience to God's word, but decide to do what we feel and what we want, what our opinions say, when we stop obeying God, when we stop walking in a clear conscience in our actions before God, we are headed for shipwreck ruin. These are two very powerful institutions how to fight the good fight. Hold on to two things. Your faith, trust in God, and a good conscience, obey God. Tim, he says, this is how it lasts. You want to make sure your faith lasts? That this is not some temporary season of your life where you got religious? Don't stop trusting God. And don't stop walking in obedience. Sometimes we make knowing God so complex. Well, you got to read your Bible every day. You got to pray at least an hour. You got to go to church, this, you know, three times a week. And you got to give this a certain amount of money. We're like, these are all, the, you know, those are all tools to help us mature. But it really comes down to this trusting God and obeying God. 
When we stop trusting God, his will, his word, and his ways, the result is we stop obeying God because we think we know what's best. Paul says, remember these guys. These two guys, he names them by name. Remember how easy it is to lose track, he says. They were active. They were regular. They were leaders. Everybody knows who they were. Remember these two guys? But then they shipwrecked. Paul says, you want to win the fight? Trust, obey, and then here's the third one, pray. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. So how does a, how does a good start go awry? You stop trusting, you stop obeying, and the third one is you stop praying. This is one of three big red flags of a floundering faith. In fact, if someone comes to me and says, man, I'm just struggling with my walk with God. I mean, I'm just not hearing God right now. I'm just I'm wondering where I'm supposed to be. I'm wondering if, if this is all real. I'm just, I don't know, man. I feel like I'm, I'm dry. I'm in a desert. You know, by the way, deserts are some of the most dynamic places to hear from God and learn from God. Because those are the seasons in trials and deserts and wilderness where you are trusting God and your faith can excel the most, right? So this is not about, you know, hardships. This is about you're just feeling empty. And you know, like they, people come to me, I'm just feeling empty, I'm feeling dry, I don't know, I'm not hearing God. Well, I usually, when there's somebody struggling in the face, I ask three simple questions, and they are, how is your time in God's Word? That's all about hearing God. And I'll ask, how is your time in God's family? That's about trusting and obeying what God's Word says and the tools that He gives us to help us to mature. And the third one I'll ask is, how is your prayer life? Are you praying? Are you pursuing God? These are one of the three Big questions. How's your trust in God? How's your obedience to God? And how's your prayer life? If you feel like your faith is floundering, ask yourself. Because if you don't recover these three, you will shipwreck. 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I urge you then, make requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving, be made for everyone. Ecclesia, our main goal first We are to pray and seek God. That is why we gather together, to pray and to seek God. Now, here's a side note. There may be a little space in your notes somewhere to add this, but he actually gives us four types of prayer there, and these are what they are. The four types of prayer are the requests. Some translations say supplications. That means when you ask God for something for yourself, that you pray according to God's will for yourself. That's a that is a request. And then he says prayer. That's basically just talking and communicating with God for the pure joy of intimacy. You're talking with God. It's a communication. You're not going to God to ask for something. You're just in his presence, talking, building your faith, seeking his face. That's prayer. And then he says, and then there's intercession. That's when you pray for others. When you start, when you pray for your family, for your kids, for your friends, for your husband, for your wife, for your neighbors, for those strangers. When you pray for people that God puts on your heart in the middle of the day, that is intercession. And then he says, and then there's thanksgiving. And that is where we voice our gratitude. That's where we have a thankful heart expressed to God. Sometimes our worship is very much a part of that aspect of prayer. We are communicating to God a voice, an expression of gratitude and thankfulness. He says these are part of our relationship with God, and this is what ecclesia is first to be about. We are to pray for who? He says very simply, for everyone, verse 2, for kings and all those in authority. He says, man, the roving, I'm going to tell you something. 
The time that this was written, the Roman government was led by a guy named Nero. Nero was considered one of the most vile and evil emperors of all of Roman's history. In fact, he was known to persecute and put to death more Christians than any other Roman emperor in that short season that he was the emperor. In fact, Nero, the guy who who is emperor at this time, is the guy who cut off Paul's head. So the guy who wrote this letter, his head was cut off by Nero. And Peter, the other apostle, he was crucified upside down, upside down under the reign of Nero under his command. In fact, Nero had, uh, part of Rome had burned down. He blamed it on Christians, and he used that as an ignition to persecute Christians all over the Roman Empire. Where he gathered together and was killing them systematically. Nero was a bad dude. He was a bad person. And the apostle Paul says, pray for kings Pray for kings and those in authority. The Roman government were not pro-Christian. They did not have godly morals. No matter what you think of our government, we are to pray and be thankful. Your prayers are not to be just for the people you like. What's the Bible said? We are to what? Love our enemies, bless those that curse you, and pray for those that persecute you. Guys, listen, this last week has been another ignition of, of issues in our United States, hasn't it? It's like every other week, there's we have racial problems in America. Let's, let's embrace that reality. However, that is not something we should embrace as our future. Amen? That is something that we can see in our lifetime, in our generation, and in our kids' generation, die and, and be healed. But let's not run from that reality that it still exists. And that's everybody in the room. But our response is not to get our pickets and our signs and march onto the capital of our state legislation or our buildings. It is to pray for our leaders and to be thankful. How can we be thankful for people we don't agree with all the time? How do we do that? Well, we do it, first of all, out of obedience, because that's what God says for us to do. And second, we do it because of what it brings. And we're, He actually says that in a minute. He says, pray for the heart of God. Uh, pray for their heart, that they would hear and know the heart of God. Who we are to pray for? Everyone and everything. God, your will be done in that person. God bless them. God touch them. God move in their heart. Something that has weakened the church today is that we have traded corporate prayer for corporate politics. We focus uh, on the mission of a nation rather than the mission of the kingdom of God. If I had a protest and, and, and had a meeting that you know about an issue, man, we would have a lot show up. But if I said, hey, tonight we're going to have a prayer meeting, I wonder who would come. The early church was not marching on City Hall. They were trusting the Almighty, obeying and praying for their leaders in spite of what their leaders would do to them or acted, being a light, and God turned the world upside down, not from the top down, but one by one as individuals began to see the love and the mercy and the grace and the, the, just the, the heart of God in individuals the entire nation was changed from 120 people in an upper room to within one generation, millions, and within two generations, billions. Not from the top down. In fact, Christianity went south, meaning went bad into bad places when the government took over Christianity. We don't want a Christian government, guys. That is where corruption begins. 
Now, we pray for our government to make Christian-minded or positive or scripturally-based decisions. But here's the problem. We are sinful people with sinful hearts and with depravity in our heart. And even if we get a Christian person in that place of leadership, you know, just like you, they're still going to make mistakes. So we pray for our individuals in leadership, Christian or not, that they would be inspired by God to accomplish God's will in our lives. But we focus on ourself as being a light to our neighbor, to our coworker, to the people sitting next to us. That is how the world has changed one by one. This is something the church is missing. Why do we pray like this? By the way, this doesn't mean that we're not involved. We are to stand against injustice and we are to proclaim those things. But we have to understand that the real power of change is fought on our knees through prayer. So he says this, why pray like this? Why not just storm the gates of the government building? No, he says storm the gates of hell through prayer. Why do we do that? So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved. That's men and women. Uh, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, that is God's goal in this whole role of doing things like this. It is not to wipe the earth out, but to see as many who will come to salvation as possible. That is the goal. Not to wipe. See, as Christians, we want to huddle groups and wipe them out and somehow think that we can create kind of this perfect state of, of government or a life or even a perfect family where there's no problems and there's no wickedness or no evil, no foul language or no morality issues. Man, no, the, the goal is not to, to separate, but to infiltrate, right? Our goal is to get in the lives of those that need Jesus, be a lighthouse amongst their lives. So that all may come to the knowledge of the truth. See, we like to get mad at our boss. God, smite him with hemorrhoids. Take him out. What he did was wrong. Make him feel miserable. No, man, the Bible says bless those who persecute you. Pray for those. Love on them. That's the heart of God, not a curse or some mean attitude towards a person. Why pray like this? So that we may live in peace and others may know the truth of Jesus. The world needs peace. The peace of God in us can touch the lives of those around us. It's an environment of change. When we are the change, when we stop being racist, when we stop being aggressive, when we stop being violent, when we be people, when we become people of grace and love and, 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 and a heart of compassion, when we become those people, when we, it says, blessed are the peacemakers, what Jesus says, for they shall see God. You want to see God in our nation? You want to see God in your family? You want to see God at work? Be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. See, that is the heart of God. He is the, Jesus is the prince of peace, right? He said, man, if we could be it says, so that we may live in peace and others may know. Man, if the world is going crazy, we are going to be in peace. Amen? When everything seems to be going weird, we are going to be in peace. We don't need to sound the alarm and pull the, pull the lever on the, on the smoke detectors and go, run! Head for the hills! We are to be at peace. We are to pray 
and be at peace. This is why it goes back to trusting God and walking in obedience. Man, I don't know about you, but I like living in peace. And even when the world is going crazy, I, I'm, a, I'm a news hound. I read the news way too much. Okay, I'm on the news every break I get. I'm reading the news, multiple sources, and I don't go, oh, oh, Lord Jesus, come soon, come fast. I'm like, no, my response is, let me be a person of peace in the midst of this. God, help me to be a person of peace, to be someone who sees the hope. You see, as it gets darker, the lights get brighter, right? So we have that opportunity to change the world through the peace of God. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God says, he says, I want everybody to make it. Be a person of peace. Pray for those that are hard to pray for and the worst of the worst and watch what God can do in your life. Paul spells it out even clearly because he gets a, man, I love this. Paul gets like a little fiery right here. He's like, pray, man, pray. He's like, pray, man, the world's going crazy. Nero's hammering down on us. He says, pray for him. And then he's like, man, the spirit of God comes on him. And he gives one of the great theological verses of the Bible. He says this, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. That means when you're praying, man, don't go to your elected officials. Go to the Lord, for there's one mediator between God. Man, be involved, but no prayer is the answer. That There's only one person that can make a change in our life, in our world, in our family. He says there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. That means when we were held captive and when we were hostages to our sin, Jesus paid the ransom on the cross by shedding his blood in our pay, place. He paid the debt of our sin, and the enemy had to release us. He says, man, he ransomed himself for all. For who? For everybody, for all. The testimony given in its proper time. That means, Welcome to First Love, Ooh. The only yeah, thanks. Show that takes you the we have 11.30 that got moved. Apparently the time didn't get First moved. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to talk over it. I'm going to give it a second. So I want you to turn to your Bibles to First Timothy chapter 2, and I want you to start reading at verse 9, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Chill out with the strawberry lemonade, too. I just hope there's no bad trailers that come on. <laughs> Go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 2. Wait a couple more minutes and I might speak over it if you guys can understand me. This is the pleasure and the joy and the challenge of being in a theater. And next week is our last week. So I'm a little happy about that. 
I don't mind it when it's just music, because then I can just preach to the music. That's kind of cool. I give it another minute. All right, let's just go ahead and keep going. We'll see what happens. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I tell you, this is a verse that is that makes the enemy tremble. And that's why I believe that this is a, kind of where the enemy decided to put this screen on. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. The testimony was given in its proper time. That means when the time was right, Jesus came. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. He says, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the true faith of the Gentiles. That means the Gentiles, anyone who is uh, considered lost. So the idea is this. There's only one true faith out of all of this. I know you're having a hard time maybe staying focused here. I know I am. But this is the reality, that Jesus is the true faith for everyone. Jesus is the one and only way to the Father. He is both God and mediator. He is both the uh, uh, mediator and man. Uh, That is why we gather. That is why we sing. That is why we pray. That is why we praise. That is why I preach. It is about Jesus. Ecclesia is the gathering of Christ's followers and Christ's seekers. So we encourage and challenge you to trust God, obey God, pray to God, and seek his face. You guys with me? Now that's the easy stuff in the passage. Now we're going to look at the hard stuff in the passage. This is really going on for a long time. The hard stuff in the passage is this. Dealing with the tough stuff. What's a man to do? 1 Timothy chapter 2, 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. That's a posture of humility and surrender. Holding hands up. Like maybe you see us holding our hands up when we worship. When we hold our hands up, that's a posture of humility and brokenness. So when we hold our hands up, we're saying, God, I surrender. So it says, when you pray, when you seek his face, hold your hands up. As a posture of humility, without anger and without disputing. That means without wrath or without divisions. So when we pray, we're talking about prayer. We pray with this in mind, with harmony and with holiness. Holiness, because we're walking in obedience, we're here worshiping authentically, there's not a facade, I'm not being fake, this is the real deal, I'm lifting my hands, not because I'm trying to impress somebody, not because I have someone next to me that I want them to think how spiritual I am, but I'm lifting my hands in worship and surrender to God, authentically, with a good conscience before the Lord, and then the second, with harmony, that means I get along with other people. There are two things that can hinder your prayer life in a very big way. And, the first, and they're mentioned right here. The two things are that you, number one, you have sin in your life, or number two, there's unforgiveness towards others. I feel like there's a little competition here. You guys still following me? All right, very good. This is like, like really good laser focus. If you have ADD, you're probably going, oh. He says there are two things that can hinder your prayer. Sin in your life and unforgiveness. The Bible speaks often about both and how they hinder our prayer life. So nothing controversial here. Now, one of the most difficult passages 
in all of the Bible. Here we go. Paul shares what's a woman to do. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. I also want women to dress modestly. Okay, sounds reasonable. With decency and propriety. Okay, not with braided hair. Well, that sounds strange. Or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. What? Okay, that sounds strange. Is there any, don't raise your hands, but is there anybody here who has braided hair today? Is there anybody here who's wearing jewelry? Uh, or maybe you have some clothes that you like, some nice clothes. Well, you're like, is this for real? But with good deeds, we are to be clothed, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Do we take that absolutely serious? Is this something that we have to live out? Well, it gets worse than that. It says this. This commercial. A man's hair is different than a woman's. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Then it gets really wild. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. That doesn't sound very politically correct. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. That means Adam knew what he was doing, but the woman was deceived. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, that is one of the most abused and most controversial passages in all of the Bible. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor for just one second. And I want you to ask each other what you think it means. All right? Go ahead and do that. I, do, I need to stop being loud. I want you to turn to your neighbor for a second and ask them, what do you think that passage means? Got to get my... I'm in the yelling mode. <laughs> it's like stimulation overload. Okay, so turn to your neighbor and say, what does that passage mean? What do you think? Are women to be quiet? If that were the case, the women stop talking. <laughs> Are we still to live by this? This is a battleground passage. This is dividing churches. It causes women to leave the church. We've had people actually leave the church over this issue ourselves, clearing one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. Let's take this up. Let me start by saying this women are dynamic leaders. Okay? In this room, there are dynamic women who are dynamic leaders. To understand this passage, we need to understand how to read the Bible. So real quick, here's a little footnote on how to understand the Bible. Here's the first thing you need to do. Uh, by the way, you need to remember that the Bible was not written to you and it was not written to me. It was written to them. We're reading a letter in 1 Timothy, and this letter was written to who? To a guy named Timothy to deal with issues for that church. It was not written to Living Way Church. It was not written to Ted Blair. This is not First Ted, chapter 2, or using my full name, First Theodore, chapter 2. This is not what, this is, so it's important to understand that the Bible was written to them, but preserved by God's will for us. So if we want to get the most out of the Bible, we need to ask ourselves a few questions. We need to ask ourselves, when was it written? Who was it written to? Why was it written? 
what does it mean for me today? This is what's known as contextualizing the verse. And also, we need to understand that we are to interpret the Bible with other passages of the Bible. We can't isolate a verse and say, well, the women are to be quiet, so that's what it says. Shh. You know, shh. If it's a baby and it's a girl, shh. If it's a baby and it's a boy, it's okay. You know, we, we like to isolate a verse, and we like to, to do this, but let's kind of put this into practice for this passage. When was this written? It was written after the events of Acts. So Acts ends, and there's some more things that happen. This was written after the events of Acts, sometime around early 60 AD. It was the ancient world. It was a deep, involved Roman emperor uh, culture, Roman empire under the rule of Nero. Who was it written to? It was written to a pastor named Tim in a church in a city called Ephesus, in the middle of Roman culture that was obsessed with goddess worship. In fact, here's a picture here of the Temple of Artemia, uh, or Temple of Artemis, also known as the Temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was one of the largest temples ever built. It was in Ephesus, and it was all to the Greek goddess Artemis and Diana. So the idea here is that this is a goddess-obsessed uh, culture in this city in particular. Uh, why was it written? Well, it was written to instruct Timothy on church life and order, things that we can apply. But we also need to realize that he was dealing with specific issues that that church had at that time in Ephesus. So remember, the Bible is written by real people and they're real letters written to real people dealing with real issues that may not apply to us all today. How do we know the difference? Well, again, we need to put it in context and then compare it to other passages of the Bible. So let's do that, and let's read this passage again. 1 Timothy 2.9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Now, this was a pagan culture of intense prostitution. Sex was an act of worship, and it was also uh, a sign of prosperity. The more you had sex, the more prosperous you were considered. So women were, were objects uh, as well as deified beings in the goddess worship of that culture. And there was this appearance that you had as a woman who was a prostitute or as, a, as an act of pagan worship. And he's basically saying, don't look like you're a prostitute. Don't look like you're out to have sex. He says, so dress modestly, decency, and with propriety. Now, the point is this, and this applies to us today. God desires for us to honor him in our appearance. This is for all of us. Not revealing, not enticing, not causing a weaker person to stumble. Pretty simple. God desires for us to honor him in all of how we dress. That's guys and girls. Uh, so, and then it goes on, but not with braided hair or gold pearls or expensive clothes. Now, that doesn't make any sense because braided hair, how can that be bad? Well, here's another thing you need to realize. In Roman culture, the braids were large and in charge. It was all about the braid. So they would pile up their hair with these expensive braids that would take hours and hours and hours to perfect. And the larger the braid, the more important you were considered. The more elaborate the braid, the more valuable you were in the culture. So basically says it shows that you spend way too much time obsessing over your own prestige and appearance. And it's a way of saying, I'm better than you. Look at my hair. 
I am better than you. Look at my jewelry. I am better than you. Look at my clothing. It was for the purpose of attracting attention to their elite attitude. Throughout the Bible, however, we see that clothing and jewelry was actually celebrated as gifts from God. In fact, we even see braids were celebrated. But in Ephesus, it was a way to separate people and to look down on people. So here's the point of that passage. It's not about you not wearing braids today. It's not about you wearing jewelry today or having nice clothes today. This is the point and how it applies to us. It means don't use your appearance or possessions to look down on others or to separate others. You see, the kingdom of God is all about regardless of whether you're rich or poor, whether you have a lot in the bank or nothing in the bank, whether you are homeless or have the biggest home on the block, we are family, and anytime we use our appearance or possessions to make ourselves better or to separate people, that is something that the Bible looks down on. So there are a lot of churches, for example, that, that you don't feel right in unless you dress a certain way. That's the idea here. And it's, it's about culture that is obsessed with trends and conceitedness. I'm better than this person. They're the people who who love the fame. They're the famers. They just, I want to be famous. So this selfie insanity, it's like we really care about every second of your life. It's called narcissism. When we look down on others or somehow we think that people like us more than themselves even, we are people of compassion, not people of self-obsession. We are to love everybody in every economic background. And Paul says when that becomes an issue with our appearance and clothes, he says, don't wear them if it's going to divide you. That's the challenge in Ephesus where there was a real elite attitude in the church. So instead, the challenge is this. Don't clothe yourself or, or make yourself look great and think you're better than other people through your appearance. He says, but instead, with good deeds, dress yourself appropriate for women who profess to worship God. For today, it's not about braids, jewelry, or clothes, but rather, where do you find your true beauty? It's in agape. That means compassion in action. That means when people look at you, they don't go, oh, man, she's so beautiful. I wish I could be her. It's no, man, she's got such a compassionate heart. And that's the attraction factor. In fact, it's in your notes, but Proverbs 31 says this. Proverbs 31 talks about a woman who knows how to work, who knows how to lead her family and care for her family. She's a lover of God, and she has beauty. And it even says that she has and wears fine clothing and dresses beautifully. So this is not an issue in the Bible about wearing nice clothes or looking pretty because we see, we see all through the Scripture that it's okay to wear even makeup in the Bible, and have nice clothing. But it's when those things become a way to make yourself uh, superior to another person, then that's when it becomes a sinful heart issue. So that was the issue here. So what Paul is saying was mostly not uh, a, a biblical mandate, but more of a local issue, a principle of modesty that still applies. Proverbs eleven twenty two says, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout, is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. So you could be the most beautiful person in the room, but with a heart that is kind of ugly towards God or has a, a mean disposition towards others, the Bible says you're like a, a, a pig with a nose in her, in her ring, in her nose, a ring in her nose. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Then Paul says this, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. So this was a culture where women were the dominant leaders. But biblically, there's a clear challenge here, and that is in the home and in the church, this 
challenge to lead has been given to the men of the house to lead with a humble servant heart. So the attitude here is, is in this culture of Kansa, uh, um, uh, culture in this church of Ephesus, saying women, just kind of turn it down a notch. Let the men lead biblically in a role where they can actually fulfill the call of God on their life as well. And this is a beautiful thing that the Bible talks about, and we're actually going to talk about this later on. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I want to do something real quick. I want everybody to, who's a woman to stand up for a minute. A woman or a girl, I want you to stand up for a minute. Okay. You are dynamic. You have been commissioned and given by God a unique purpose and role in life in the church and in your home. And I want you to know this, that you are equal in every way to the man sitting next to you, to the man that is across from you, and to me. According to Jesus Christ, we are equal. I am not better than you. You are not better than me. You have a role and a part to play in the kingdom of God that is special and unique and dynamic in its own way. And so do I. And so do the men sitting next to you and the boys sitting next to you. But I want you to know the Bible sees you as an equal in the eyes of God. And every woman here is valuable, not only in your family, but in the church and in our church. My wife is one of, one of my most influential teachers in my life. You know, as a husband who leads our home, my wife is my counselor, and uh, she challenges me, and she teaches me, and if you are a man, you know this is true, your wife can even correct you, right? But that doesn't mean that you're not the leader that God has ordained for that home, right? So you have in this room great teachers standing, dynamic counselors, people who are dynamic leaders and have a role to play in their home and their family. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means in the coming chapters of 2 Timothy, but I want to establish that, that this passage in Ephesians is uh, in uh, 1 Timothy is not about you having to be silent in your role and your gifts and your leadership. Go ahead and have a seat. I want to celebrate the women. Thank you, women. Men, clap for these women who are dynamic leaders in our church and in your home and in your life. Jesus broke the cultural norms for women. In fact, the book of Acts refers to women who challenged and taught men and who even prophesied to men and taught men. Therefore, I think this is a cultural context for Ephesus. He says a similar thing in the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is a similar culture, which is right across the bay from Ephesus. In the Old and New Testament, God uses women in power and in dynamic leadership ways. So what he is about to say, he prefaces with this. Look at this verse 12. He says, I do not permit. This is important to know because what the Apostle Paul is saying, guys, listen, with all that's going on in your culture where men are not stepping up to the plate and leading in ways that honor God, I'm going to challenge the women. He says, I am challenging you and I'm asking you, he says, to not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. By the way, by the way that word silent is accurately translated more to peaceful. 
She's supposed to be at peace with this. She's not to, it's not about being quiet. It's not about being able to say anything. It's not about being able to have an influence in the Ephesus church. It's like let her be at peace with what God is instructing them. Now, this is important to know that the Apostle Paul often says, this is what I'm challenging you. And then often he says, this is not I, but the Lord's command. This is not one of those moments. He is not saying, this is the Lord's command. Women, be quiet. He says, I do not permit. He says, in the context of Ephesus, he's challenging Ephesus. Guys, listen, I challenge you. Let the women just be quiet as they learn to lead under uh, a, a role that honors God. And then he gives this reason for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Um, there's a lot there. We don't really have time to unpack it right now. But this is a strange, controversial verse. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. What does that mean? Basically, it means that your greatest legacy one day will not be that Eve fell into sin, but that you're a dynamic woman and a mother and a leader in your home. That's what's beautiful. He says, yeah, this, that legacy of yours is, man, Eve, women, deception, and they're, just, they're weak. No, he says, no. He says, you know, if, you be, if you're going to be a dynamic leader, if you want to break that legacy, if you want to be free from that, from that, you know, reputation, he says, be a great mom. Be a great leader in your home. Be great with your family. Again, culturally for Ephesus and Corinthians, Paul says, I do not. An instruction for them to ensure the services are done in order and without chaos. And here's the point that applies to us today, is that there is ministry structure in church that is part of God's plan. We're going to talk about this in a couple weeks, that women are dynamic teachers and leaders as we see, but there are also limitations on some of those leadership roles, and there's more on that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at that uh, in the coming week. Um, so I want, this is a controversial passage, but more so it applies to what was happening in Ephesus than it does in Garland, Texas in 2017, all right? So now that we've got everyone upset with me, um, what to do when the other side doesn't get it? And I want to end with these couple thoughts. Uh, and I don't mind going late because of that screen fiasco. Is uh, What do we do when the other side doesn't get it? Is number one, if it's black and white and crystal clear, we need to divide over it. The Bible is very clear on certain things about salvation, about heaven, about hell, about the cross. And the Bible says that these are things that we can be in unity about. But he also says if it's crystal clear and they still choose to not agree or to, to not accept that, then we are to divide over it. Well, Paul says this, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. He says that in 1 Timothy 4, 7. And then Paul says the churches in Galatians, he says this, but even if an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I'm saying again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be eternally condemned. He goes on to say, have nothing to do with them. That is why we as Christians separate ourselves from cults and false teachers. All right. So if the Bible is crystal clear, we are to divide over it. However, the second thing, if it's not clear, unity is more important than uniformity. Okay? This is where it goes back to some of us will not agree on everything. And if it's an area in the Bible that is not crystal clear, our unity is more important than you agreeing with me and me agreeing with you. Our oneness in Christ is more important than our agreement. Remember this. 
passage, when you come across tough passages and someone who's not getting along with you, 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move the mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. As I look at Scripture on unclear verses, I may have ways that I see them and ways that you see them, but when it comes down to it, our unity is more important. So you know what? I preach the Bible contextually, expository, book by book, but there are certain letters that I'm not going to preach on a Sunday morning because of the divisive nature. For instance, I will never do a Sunday morning series on Revelation. Okay? That's a very divisive issue because there are four major views and about 100 different sub-views of Revelation. And if I were to do a series on it on a Sunday morning where there's not a discussion available, then I would be preaching speculation and opinion. I have, however, done Bible studies where we've gone through Revelation and discussed it and talked about it and looked at different views. That's the right environment for something like that, where we can agree and where we can disagree and we can challenge each other. But there are some things where unity is more important than uniformity. Here's our statement of faith. As we as a church are about to move and kind of restarting all over again, we're going to have a new face, a new look, a new structure, a new layout. Uh, everything will be really, really uniquely different. This is what we set our theology on. Unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, and love in all things. I hope that you walk away today, not with what I think about women in ministry, but rather how to agree to disagree and to be in unity, how to be mature. Okay, As a church, we will have people come into our church that don't agree with you about everything and don't agree with me about everything. I think that's one of the unique things about our church is we give liberty and non-essentials. You don't have to agree with me on the end times. I don't have to agree with you either, okay? There are essentials we do agree on. So because there is a world out there looking for authentic, mature people who in love and unity, I hope we can model Christ through that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this strange service this morning. <laughs> Lord, um, I believe you are in control. And Lord, you're teaching me through these moments of chaos, even in our service, to trust you and to look forward to what you have for us in the future. And God, I thank you for our people who this morning, in the midst of that confusion and chaos, that we were able to stay focused to the best of our ability. And that in spite of all that noise, we walk out of here today with maturity and a heart for unity with each other. God, I thank you, Lord, that we are a church that is growing mature people who are able to agree to disagree on issues that are not important. But stand firm in the reality that you are the one God, the one mediator, the one who ransomed his life for us and who is coming again. That is what we stand in unity together with. God, I thank you for these women in this room who are leaders in our church, who held uh, different roles and who are speaking into our lives as men. And God, I pray that you'd help us as men to understand our role as we lead our families and as we lead our church and as we give room for the dynamic leadership of the women in our lives. God, thank you, Father, that even though we stumble and struggle at this, you love us and you help us, Lord do this. Help us to be people of peace in a world that's going crazy and be people of unity when the world is looking for a place to find
Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.